You're listening to BAU, Business as Unusual, the podcast that speaks to the people behind the movements, organisations and ideas that are shifting the way we think, interact and transact. All right, so today we're joined by Craig Middleton, who is the curator at the National Museum of Australia. Uh, he is also a visiting fellow at Australia National University, and he is the uh, general member for the ACT LGBTIQ Plus Ministerial Advisory Council. So, Patrick, um, so we got a fair bit of time to to chat to Craig, and you know, I think what was really really interesting was probably just the thread of going through about kind of the role of kind of a national institution and a national museum. It really was getting Craig's insight into where he thinks a gallery should be heading and how to blend. I suppose we all know COVID has really been an accelerator in so many places, but I think for a, for a gallery and for for a curator in a in a national museum to understand that and and to piece that together, he does that really well. But on the back end of that, Craig and another have co-authored a book together called Queering the Museum. And what I found really fascinating was how how Craig finds it imperative that I suppose, well, the argument put forward in the book is changing queer from a noun to a verb or understanding that and then that premise of how it helps inform how a museum works. I think Craig lays bare in this conversation that you're about to hear some, some great, interesting and playful things that you've never heard happen in a museum. Yeah, it's so true. And, you know, his his perspective, I think, is, you know, it is informed by that. And I think that's really helped um, them embrace one, the, I think that, you know, the kind of moving away from, uh, as Craig um, starts to talk about this kind of this um, cabinet of curiosities, to much more embracing how curious we actually are as a nation, and the way that we actually document that. So um, his kind of notion of, of queering is really, really interesting, because I think it's about actually opening us up to really kind of be more comfortable in terms of kind of actually exploring stuff and really tipping stuff on its head. So Craig, um, would you mind introducing uh, yourself to the listeners and just paint us a picture of where this podcast actually finds you today? Yeah, of course. So I am a curator at the National Museum of Australia, which is uh, located in Canberra, our nation's capital. And I suppose, you know, as a curator, my job is to do a lot of things, actually, and, and no day is the same. Uh, one day I might be doing historical research. Another day I'm, you know, talking to communities about the objects that they believe are significant to their own communities and to the nation. And then other days I'm, you know, talking to school kids about, you know, a, a range of topics across Australian history. So it's a really interesting job. And I guess being in Canberra and at the National Museum, it's, it's, it's a big job because we're trying to capture stories of a whole country. It is a big job. And you've got a, a real passion for this and a, and a passion can go either way but you've got a passion to to reignite a flame i suppose in museums from the work that i've read of yours and, and some of the work that's come out most recently but I, I was hoping you could talk a little bit about for me museums especially as a school kid it just conjured up pictures of a long time ago like ancient egyptians casting a viewer's eye a long time ago but i was wondering what and to be able to understand that museums play a huge role in, and in, in designing and constructing 
not only narratives, but identities. I was hoping, Craig, you could just tell us a little bit more about how a museum actually works, sounds, in practice, behind the curtains, and who decides what goes into the, the glass cabinets. Yeah, of course, that's a great question. It's a big question, but uh, I think, you know, you just mentioned uh, attending museums as sort of a young person in school. And interestingly enough, you know, when I grew up in South Australia and the South Australian Museum does have an ancient Egypt room. And so, you know, when I grew up, I, I had that same vision of museums as being places for really what we might call ancient things and exotic things um and at one point in in the history of these things we call museums that that very much uh was how they were intended to be you know museum collections emerged from uh really wealthy uh really you know i suppose socially important people who had the means to travel the world and collect or take or steal things that didn't belong to them and then and and then display it for their friends and then you know after a while these um what they call cabinets of curiosities um became you know commonplace and then museums emerged and and it's all sort of they've derived out of that that tradition but you know from I think it was like from the 1960s and this emerged out of uh, the UK uh, classic story um, out of the UK is that uh, there was a social there's there's all these social movements uh, around the working class person and and their rights and their story and their and the need to be to be sharing those stories so from the 1960s this idea of history was moving away from the you know really wealthy mostly white profiled people um to really acknowledging that there's there's lots of different kinds of people in our society and and all of their stories are important and so australian museums while we have some of the sandstone uh much older uh, museums here uh we've got a lot of museums that emerged out of this uh this period and and they sort of call this period sort of history from below and and the social history movement so the museum i'm working at right now the national museum of australia was sort of legislated in the 1980s um and and opened in 2001 so it's a relatively new museum but it 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 attempts and does tell the story of of a, a range of people from from the most profiled people all the way through to to the everyday Australian and and that is that is social history and um, I suppose your 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 question about uh, how museums you know operate from behind the scenes uh, is a good one and I suppose you know from my perspective I'm less interested in what uh, museums are and more interested in what museums do mm. and so uh, museums are places you know irrespective if you were dragged there as a as a 10 year old on a school excursion or if you choose to go on your own they they help us make sense of where we are and and who we are so in the in our context here it's who we are as as Australians and so what is presented in museums to you actually is really it's a really important thing because if you 
exclude some narratives, some stories, some perspectives, then these young people moving through these spaces might feel like they aren't paths they can follow in life. And so so I guess it's really important that as a curator and, and, and in the role of putting stories on display and, 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 and running events from particular perspectives that we're conscious of that to not exclude the worldviews of the people coming through our doors and to offer as many perspectives as we can because we know the world is complex and, and people are complex and, um, you know, this idea that everyone's the same just because we have this sort of imagined community of being Australian is, is not one that that's adopted in, in museums today. Great stuff. And Craig, so earlier this year, so you and your co-author, uh, Nikki Sullivan, so you published a uh, book and really a manifesto called Queering the Museum. Can you talk to us a little bit about the concept that actually went behind that and now the practice of actually kind of queering a museum? And the second part of my question is also the importance, I think, of moving the word queer from really kind of, you know, being a noun to actually being a verb. Yeah, great. That's um. I would love to talk about that. So, yeah, so I guess the uh, important thing for me to acknowledge is that I wrote this with my colleague, um, Nikki Sullivan, and I, the book, Queering the Museum, sort of st- starts off from three key claims. And, and the first is that museums are both shaped by and shape the social political landscapes in which they operate. And so are implicated in in systems of power and privilege. So I guess that's that's referring to um, that's referring to the idea that actually when a museum's located in a particular society or a particular community, that it can't actually escape or stand back from all the the, the social political ideas and 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 structures that underpin that community. The second uh, claim is that, um, and, and the book's absolutely named Queering the Museum, is that largely uh, LGBTIQ, so it's lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, intersex and queer plus, I love the plus because it includes everybody, um, the, 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 the stories and lives of these groups of people are largely absent in museums internationally and and while there have been moves um, which the book takes you through to include um, these lives of these marginalized people that that in a way there's you know uh, there's there's not been a, a serious fundamental shift in how we understand these kind of lives and the third claim that underpins the book is that um, museums should be active participants in 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 critically engaged and socially transformative ways of knowing, being, and doing. So really, that's really thinking about um, that's really thinking about that idea of what a museum can do rather than what a museum is. Mm. So, uh, I guess something I could actually give you a kind of example of practice if you like uh, that might give you a sense of how um, we Nikki and I have attempted to to queer the museum and I guess um, I'm just now going back to your question about queer as a noun and queer as a verb in throughout the book we use this um, these two ways of, of queer so queer 
as a as a noun is is referring to the lives of LGBTIQ plus people. It's a, it's talking about identity categories. So uh, I identify as a as a queer person. I identify as having same sex attraction, and the way I express my gender identity could be seen as as non normative. So that's me as queer as a noun. But we also use queer as a verb, and and too queer is to make something strange to turn it on its head and to to look at it from a different perspective and that's the kind of work that we're attempting to do when we talk about queering the museum so we're not thinking that one day a museum will be queer but queering the museum is this sort of ongoing process and practice that will you know, potentially always be needed because what we queer today might be tomorrow's mistakes. And so we would look at that through this lens of queering once more to to open up the possibilities. Uh, but I guess a, a short example that I could give you is is uh, a few years ago, Nikki and I worked with 10 uh, people in Adelaide who identified as having um, diverse sexuality or gender. Uh, we we welcomed them into our museum. We allowed them to research the collection, to visit our off-site storage so that they could actually physically see and look at the objects we, we had collected over uh, the course of the life of the museum. And we asked them to pick an object or objects and then write a label uh, associated with those objects that related to their experience of gender or sexuality. And that's kind of like a really simple, um, you know, it's a simple task or you would think it was a simple task. But actually none of the objects in the History Trust of South Australia's collection at that point in time had been identified as being um, queer or gay or lesbian or any of those categories. So this was, a, this was actually quite an intellectual challenge, asking people to look at these objects that had these documented histories but disregarding those histories and, and thinking about how it related to their experiences. And one great example was by Richard Boyle, who is a local Adelaide um, textile artist. And um, he was really interested in this concept of a lavender marriage. And so a lavender marriage is a marriage of convenience um, between uh, a gay man and a woman. And... Um, the marriage was, this was obviously in times uh, before marriage equality and before um, decriminalisation of homosexuality, and um, they would marry and the woman would be uh, referred to as a beard and, and she was the concealer of this man's homosexuality. And so to explore that, this person, this um, artist, found in our collection um, a 1950s wedding dress and 1950s post-World War, the wedding dresses, they weren't, you know, big gowns like we know them today. It was a very simple short-cut dress, but it was lavender in colour. And and he found um, separately a beard from a child's costume. And now usually you wouldn't display these two objects together, but Richard wanted to display them together. So we put them on the same mannequin and he wrote a label explaining his approach and, and his understanding of lavender marriage. So that's a way that through putting objects in non, you know, 
non-normative or unusual configurations, you can actually open up the interpretation to explore something that's very specific to queer lives in a way that you couldn't if you followed a traditional sort of model of interpretation, um, which would rely solely on the documented history of those objects. You're listening to BAU, Business as Unusual, the podcast that speaks to the people behind the movements, organisations and ideas that are shifting the way we think, interact and transact. Your hosts, Patrick Beggs of Per Production, a production house that works with organisations to create media that strengthens culture and communicates that culture to the world. And Joe Rogers, CEO of The Contenders, a brand agency famous for crafting brands which deliver results for those who work for them, shop for them and support them. For more information, head to baupod.co. And if you find this podcast insightful, please help us by telling a friend and rating us on iTunes. Thank you. Now back to our conversations. I really love how long you've gone there and really given us an in-depth look into that, Craig. And we spoke a little bit about that story and, and making history alive is so central to your work and, and bringing people to the realisation that is that is history is alive and it's happening right now and it is tangible, but so is the lens upon which we view back and be able to interpret what has happened and gone before helps us understand who we are now and that importance of having things on display for kids um, people of all ages really to go into a museum and see that some of their story might be represented in there is a powerful thing and I find it quite fascinating that the Australian museum's only been around or the national museum's only been around 20 years in terms of its full-fledged form Um, I was hoping you could before going to there just talk a little bit more on just how how history is alive say right now we're living through a very historic moment COVID um how do you see that playing out in in a museum and how do you how do you lay bare that to make it feel inclusive and and, and capture that information and then also how would you see it documented in, in an ideal world in an ideal museum yeah so COVID is uh is a big one uh we're obviously very much in the thick of it so it's really um it's a big challenge to see beyond how it's impacting you right now, but it is a really important, uh, uh, will be a really important history to, to share. And I think that's, that is part of the job of a museum curator is not just to look to the distant past, but it's to actually be really engaged with the present and, and be thinking about what we can capture now, um, for the future and to help people in the future not only understand this time but understand themselves from how this place has evolved. And so so I guess um, we at the National Museum have been documenting um, COVID-19 in in a range of ways and, and, and we would do... How would we do this? We would do it... In, in a more traditional way, which is uh, identifying three-dimensional physical objects that might relate to a particular uh, moment in time and then collect that object. But with COVID um, and actually just recent times generally, at least since 1994 when the internet became uh, publicly accessible, 
Um, we live in this world where the information is fleeting. A lot of the what is produced, the material culture, isn't material. It's physical. It's it's digital rather. And so we've got to be thinking about how we can capture uh, those um, parts of our contemporary experience. And so what we did at the National Museum was set up a Facebook group. And uh, it was in part to uh, to document something in a really quick way as much as it was to offer a space for people to, to engage and have conversations and really make sense of what we were living through together with you know people they may know but also strangers and so you know that facebook group has attracted about almost 3000 members and has been a constant flow of um information and 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 sharing of experience since april when it was launched and it, it's been really fascinating watching that group because right at the beginning you know in april you could feel the anxiety coming through what was being posted. So there was lots of photos of empty supermarket shelves and that, um, you know, anxiety-driven um, panic buying that was happening. And then people sharing how they were responding to that maybe creatively or artistically. I remember uh, someone sharing that they had, an artist obviously had made... Um, uh, toilet paper earrings to mark that moment <laughs> in time, which I think is fascinating and um, and and you know really pertinent to the Australian experience because my understanding is that you know this um, this thing that happened here around toilet paper then you know had flow on effects around the world. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we started a know, trend. <laughs> we did. We did. <laughs> and as you sort of like as as that 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 initial moment passed and and I, I suppose we were realising that we were um, in this for the long run and it wasn't just a fleeting moment. Then the, then the post started changing and, and people were sharing experiences of having to transition to working from home or transition to homeschooling their young people and, and also making the most of their community where they could, thinking about, um, the teddy bear hunts that were everywhere, people putting teddy bears in the window so the kids could, when they went for their walk, could 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 hunt them out and also chalk drawings on the ground. And, and you know, it, it, it's constantly evolved uh, since then, um, most recently uh, being, you know, uh, September now. Um, we've seen a lot of content coming through from Victorians who have been experiencing, you know, a second lockdown and, and what that means and how they're making sense of that and they're sharing their authentic content to this group. And so this Facebook group will be, you know, captured and archived and and kept in in prosperity for the future and, and can help people make sense of, of this time. Uh, and, and, you know, from this group, we make connections with people and we can collect their physical objects if they exist. And we can then officially collect photographs, um, digital born material, videos, sound recordings, all sorts of things from this time. So it's a way to uh, keep in touch with people. And I think actually what, what I did want to mention about using these tools, these existing tools like Facebook, is that the kinds of stories you get through these mm. platforms are often unremarkable. Mm. They're, they're common experiences 
and and you know the photos of you know how someone set up their desk in their living room you know working from home is actually quite unremarkable but it's really important and if we weren't to use these more accessible platforms you know would these people feel like the the national museum of australia was the place to share that story my bet would be no but because we can we can document history in these ways using these new digital platforms not new anymore but these digital platforms we can actually connect with with a much more diverse range of people which means the history we're creating through what we do at the museum is much more diverse that's really really interesting and Craig, I mean, how is that? How is that shaping the the actual kind of the the museum? How is that kind of that transition? I think from you know museums being more of this um, physical collection of physical objects, as you said, like the cabinet of curiosity, um, that then becomes a national collection that then is held and we're educated about, and we we pull a sense of meaning from being in this in this space. Whereas what you're starting to to see, I guess, in terms of kind of some of the collection stuff, is that is now. It's moments in time. So I'm just interested from a curation perspective, how you balance that, the kind of the the, no, the need for physical object. Is that changing? Um, and kind of what is the actual kind of impact in a collection of most of the content being digital? Yeah, that's a great question. And I don't know if anybody's really, you know, nailed that. I think what COVID-19 has done for a lot of museums, it has pushed them into these spaces much faster than that they were maybe moving towards them. I think, you know, in any in any kind of uh, business or, um, you know, cultural experience, we, we get a bit bound down in the bricks and mortar. We think, okay, we have this building. We need to fill it with things. We need to get people to this building. Uh, but actually what, what this, this, this period has done for us um, as in a sector of professionals working in museums is is realize that you can have you can create the same meaning and you can have have just as valuable engagement and impact doing things online and doing things digitally uh, it's just a different way and it's not to say that physical objects will become a thing of the past i don't think that would be possible um but it's just acknowledging that that digital objects, stories, and engagement is given equal status to that of a physical experience. And I'm sure this is these conversations and these ideas are, are also happening in, in sites where um, uh, performance and theatre are, are the products being produced, um, you know, thinking about that, that need for the physical and the physical experience um and and i might just say one more thing on that it's that it's not so these using digital tools and collecting digital objects it's not just about re replicating what we might have physically you know this 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 uh moment or this this world that we live in right now the digital experiences are authentic and they are of their own being and we need to acknowledge that that they're not just used to recreate a physical world but they're their own um you know embodied experiences well said and i feel like the the museum um is in good hands if if you get them there craig to just reimagine 
what it can be in the future, especially with this acceleration that COVID has done to so many sectors and so many lifestyles. Uh, and I think the museum has to play an important role because life is becoming a bit of a curatorial process or a selection process. Algorithms are running it at the moment about what content you do come across. Uh, but a museum, I suppose, being able to, to house that, tell that story and let people uh, um, view it at their own leisure is an important thing and an important thing if they can get into the digital space and make stories that do connect people um, to something that is bigger than themselves. So I'm very excited to see what the future holds for museums, especially with yourself, um, mixing it up, mixing the medicine up, I suppose. But I wondered if you could tell us a little bit what your future holds or what the future holds for you, say, in 10, not for you, but for museums. Like, what's your, what's your vision for where museums could head, say, 10 to 20 years from now? That's a cool question. Um, I've never considered myself a futurist as such, but um, I, 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 something that I believe in now uh, is that museums, and you've probably got a sense of that through what I've said, but museums have a really important social responsibility. And, and I don't necessarily think right now that a lot of museums are... Uh, you know, embodying or enacting that social responsibility in ways that they they could. And so, you know, my ideal museum of the future would, would you know, have, as soon as you walked in, there would be lots of different faces and lots of, you know, diverse um, bodies in the room and in the interpretation. It would be it would be working productively with marginalised and historically excluded communities, not just to take stories and put them on display, but to actually really think about the needs, wants and desires of those communities and then and then thinking about how a museum can actually be of service to that community and not be of service to itself. So, so you know and i believe that is where museums are heading at least right now things can change quickly as we know uh, but uh, but but yeah it's that it's that you know that civic work that museums you know are set up to do um that gets lost in the commercial world and gets lost in the need to earn revenue and earn income and and i think it's important that you know, moving forward, we need to step back into that social role or, or move towards it if we've never been into it. Fantastic. And Craig, um, last last question and from, from us. So um, Richard Florida so wrote this great book kind of called The, the Creative Class. Um, and he spoke, you know, quite, quite well, quite elegantly around the kind of the role, one of kind of, um, I guess, kind of ensuring that there are artisans, there are kind of crafts. And there's this kind of this cultural mixing that actually happens. But I'm really kind of curious, you know, from a from a Canberra um, perspective that has often been accused of um, being, you know, boring, um, what you believe the kind of the actual kind of the museum is actually bringing to Canberra? And do you believe it's actually starting to kind of build that creative community or enhance what was already there? I mean, how do you see a national museum actually affecting your local community? That's a great question. And actually, I've only been living in Canberra for 12 months. So uh, I don't, 
I don't know how accurately I could answer that question, uh, but there is most definitely uh, a much more... Uh, there's like a critical mass of people here engaging in arts and culture. And and I guess, you know, you can feel that when mm. when you're here, you know, the, the kinds of events that are being run, the kinds of conversations you have with people. And I think, you know, we're really lucky here because we do have the large... Uh, the large portion of national cultural institutions that cuts across, you know, the National Museum is, is social history and then you can engage with the, the National Gallery of Australia um, from a very different perspective and engage with artists and makers. And, and then you've got local museums here like Craft ACT. And, you know, so I think, um, I think, you know, Canberra is an exciting place to be and I think the national museums as well as the local museums do have a huge impact on the community. And I think, you know, if we interrogated that a bit closely, um, we might actually be able to learn from it and then that might inform policy in other places, um, in other cities, in other, um, in other areas. But I think the challenge for these institutions being in Canberra is having a national remit and, and how how we can connect to the most regional part of northern Western Australia from Canberra. You know, it's a challenge mm. um, for us. So, um, and I don't think there's any clear-cut answers, but I think it's a it's an interesting challenge and a and a and a really important one to be grappling with. Thank you for listening to BAU Business as Unusual. Subscribe and learn more at baupod.co. That's baupod.co.